Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Last week, Pastor Chad preached a message called Soul Weight. And today, I want to preach a message that I'm entitling Soul Renewal. Soul Renewal. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He restores my soul. He restores my soul. He renews my soul. Now, my soul is made up of my mind, my will, and emotions. And today, we want to focus in on the renewing of our minds. An old Italian gentleman lived alone in New Jersey. He he wanted to plant his annual tomato garden, but it was difficult because the ground was really tough. And he was getting up in years, and his only son, Vincent, who used to help him always till the ground, was in prison. He was in prison, been in prison for several years. The old man one day wrote his letter to his son, and he said, Dear Vincent, I'm very sad. He said, It looks like I won't be able to plant uh, my tomato garden this year. I'm just getting too old to dig, and the, and the ground's just too hard. He said, if you were here, my problems would would be over. My troubles would be done. I know you'd be happy to dig it for me like you did in the old days. Love, Papa. A few days later, he received a letter from his son and said, Dear Papa, do not, capital letters, dig up that garden. That's where the bodies are buried. Love, Vinny. At 4 a.m., local police And agents arrived and they dug up the entire area without finding any bodies. No bodies at all. They apologized to the old man and they left. The same day, the old man received another letter from his son and it said, Dear Papa, go ahead and plant the tomatoes now. That's the best I could do under the circumstances. Love, Vinny. Love, Vinny. Jesus began his ministry with this phrase. Repent... For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What I've learned in a decade plus of ministry is that most Christians repent enough to get forgiven, but not enough to actually see the kingdom. Enough to forgiven personally, but not enough to see the kingdom expressed in their life. The the purpose of repentance, church, is to shift from one reality to become aware of another reality. To go from one dimension to another dimension. The kingdom, what we call the kingdom of God, is the realm of God's dominion. It's the realm of His effective will. When I mention the kingdom of God, it's wherever His will is being accomplished. The great John Calvin said that the church was wherever the word of God went out and it conquered hearts. In other words, it's where God's effective will is taking place. It is measurable, the kingdom of God is. It is real and it is now. See, Jesus' church works every day of our life to teach us what his world looks like. He's teaching us how to look at the world around us. To open up our hearts to become aware of what it looks like when the dominion of God, the kingdom of God, comes upon the earth. When that greater reality that's even more real than the reality you and I touch, see, taste, and feel, that 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 reality changes and it transforms whatever situation it touches on earth. When the kingdom of God comes breaking into our experience, it changes what we are dealing with. And for us, learning to be ministers of the gospel of the kingdom is the real essence of the gospel for us, those of us who are already Born again. We've told you before, it's not just about dying and going to heaven. I'm thrilled, I'll be honest with you, I'm thrilled that the majority of us, hopefully all of us, that is our future. But the reality is, is that we have been assigned not to go to heaven. We've been assigned to bring the reality of heaven to earth. We've been assigned to bring the reality of God's kingdom on our experience. See, my job is not going to heaven. My job is to bring heaven's reality here. My job is to see the kingdom of God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, because of that, it has to be measurable. We have to be able to look at our lives and see that there's a measurable response to the kingdom of God. That, that This is not just a theory. This is not just a, a feeling. It is that which conquers that which is in front of us. It conquers that which is inferior to it. 
And what repentance does, church, is repentance is what turns us and turns us into a position to begin to behold what God's trying to do right now. To begin to see what God's trying to do in my life, my family's life, the church family's life, our nation's life right now. That's what repentance is. Repentance is the way of the renewed mind. When you talk about soul renewal, you're talking about a mind that is set on repentance. Now, we've told you before and you've learned in growth phases, faith does not come from the mind. It does not come from the intellect. It comes from the heart. Faith doesn't come from the mind. The scripture says, with the heart man believes unto righteousness, Romans 10.10. 10. Uh, it's with the heart man believes. So faith, in that sense, is not the, the product of striving. It's the product of surrender. It's the product of repentance and surrender to God. It is my nature as a believer to believe. It is my nature as a believer to have faith for whatever I am facing. It is my nature in Christ to be a person of faith. If you think about it, Jesus never taught us how to deal with unanswered prayers. Because he didn't have any unanswered prayers. He never really taught us. He taught us about persistence, but he never really taught us about what to do if, as if God would never answer us. Jesus, now I know it's crazy, but he invited us into a journey where, where, where we might explore what is possible in our lifetime, where we would explore what is possible through our own lives. Four times in three chapters, Jesus made this statement. Ask whatever you desire and it will be done for you. Ask whatever you desire and it shall be accomplished. Now I understand there's a dangerous situation, an invitation for God to give to humanity because there are a lot of people who want to use any opportunity they can to, to boost their own ego, to boost their own self-significance. I get that. But Jesus is a God who makes himself vulnerable to the desires of his people and he welcomes us into a relationship where in that relationship we... Negotiate's not a good word, but it's the only word I can think of right now. Where, where he invites us into to where, where we would negotiate concerning the affairs of man and the happenings that are happening on planet Earth. There's no doubt that intercession has changed and shaped the course of history. That God in his vulnerability invites his church into that reality. The scripture says in Psalm 115 verse 16 that the heavens were made for God, but the earth was given to mankind. The heavens were made for God, but the earth for mankind. That means he gave us the responsibility for the earth that you and I live on. Now here's what's amazing to me. We oftentimes blame the Lord for tragedies and disasters that take place, and yet we are faced with the striking reality, who did he leave in charge? We often get that in apologetic conversations, why did God not intervene? Well, who is in charge? God has given charge. God has given direction. God has given free will to mankind. Is God sovereign? Of course. You heard it said before, Jesus Christ is perfect theology. In other words, anything you think you know about God that you can't find in the person of Jesus, you have reason to question. So that when we look at Jesus, we're looking at a picture of God. When we look at the Son of God, we're looking at the very essence of the Father. And Jesus, throughout his whole ministry, illustrated the heart of the Father. He illustrated the gospel, uh, the heart of the Father through every gospel you and I read of. Now, my favorite gospel, the gospel of John, gives us this very overwhelming message, overwhelming reality. I remember years ago going through the New Testament, and I just started making a list of all the reasons why Jesus came. And, and, and it's common sense for those of us who follow Jesus for any amount of time. You, you, you could make a great list, too. You, you could write down a list of why Jesus came. And, and I remember having walked in the faith, I started writing on my list. You know, he, we know he came to destroy the works of the evil one, First John tells us. We know that he ultimately came to suffer in our place. We know that he ultimately came to seek and save the lost. We know that he came to bring the reality of the kingdom. There's so many things we could put on that list from the Bible. But there's one re reason why Jesus came that is clear and above and beyond the rest of them. And that is that he came to reveal the Father. Jesus came to reveal the nature of the Father. Now everything that would be on my list, about 20 different things that I would put on there, they are a sub-point, each of those, of the primary reason that He came to reveal the heart of the Father. 
Now listen, the, the, the revelation of the Old Testament was not the revelation of the Father. The revelation of the Old Testament was the revelation of the severity of sin and the absolute lost condition of humanity. That's what we get revealed in the Old Testament. The fact that there isn't an answer apart from the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Those of you, you've ever been in an ultrasound room before. Think of it this way. The Old Testament is the ultrasound of Jesus. The Old Testament is the ultrasound. Before Jesus is being birthed into the earth to reveal the heart of the Father, we get glimpses of it through the Old Testament passages. We get glimpses of what the Father really is like. If there is, now think about this, there are not multiple ways to God the Father. Jesus very clearly said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. He's the only way. If there were other ways, then the Father was unusually cruel to His Son to require the suffering He went through. But it was required because it was the only possible way. And Jesus, in his life, comes to reveal something that had not been revealed up to this point in history. Something that had not been, now follow with me this morning, something that had not been clearly depicted up to this time. And when he came, he came to reveal that there was a father who actually cared for his children. He came to reveal that there was a, a father who really loved his children. Now, church, he's, he's a more extreme father than any of us could ever imagine. You understand that the father's goodness cannot be exaggerated. It can be diluted. It can be distorted. It can be defiled, but it cannot be exaggerated. There's not a person on the planet who's ever had a thought that super exceeds really how good God is. He's far greater than any of you and any of myself included have ever thought. His goodness cannot be exaggerated. And so what we have to do in repentance and a renewed mind is our thinking needs to be consistent with his nature. That's what repentance is. That's what repentance is. Repentance is the introduction to who he is and then I begin to think according to his nature. It's an introduction to his character and then I begin to think consistently with who he is. See, the target of the Lord for all of us in this room is a renewed mind. The target of the Lord is a renewed soul. Now, faith, I told you already, doesn't come from the mind. So that means that faith isn't the, 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 the mind isn't the source of faith, but, but the renewed mind would be like the banks of a river. Think of it like this. The renewed mind is like the banks of a river. It's the context that faith is expressed. So if we're going to see our lives be faith-filled, we're going to have to have a riverbank. We're going to have to have a renewed mind that enables the life and the miracle and the supernatural flow of God to flow through our renewed mind. That's the target of God for each of us. The mind creates the context for faith to be expressed in a situation. The mind creates the context for faith to be expressed in whatever it is I'm dealing with. Now, I wish I could say that the renewed mind comes from studying Scripture alone. But I can't say that. Studying Scripture is the launching place. It is the beginning place for renewing of the mind. But there are many people today who study the Scripture for six, eight hours a day. Seven, eight, nine hours a day. And they can talk to you all about this Jesus who did miracles, but they can't display a miracle. They can talk to you about what God has done in the past, but they can't live in what God's doing in the future. And the Bible says in Acts 1 and 1, here's what's amazing. The Bible says Jesus began to work, and the Bible says very clearly with his disciples, all that he did and he taught. Now in the modern evangelical church, we've taken out do and we just put all that Jesus taught and he 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 taught. And we keep talking about teaching and we keep talking about what he taught, but that's not the ministry of Jesus. He began to share with the disciples what he did and what he taught. See, listen, there wasn't a separation from his function and his teaching. There was no separation with the Son of God. In many of our cultures right now, let me give you an example of this. You can go to a business school and you can sit in business classes and be taught by people who never owned a business. Because our culture in America elevates concept and principle, not experience. We are in a day and age where we are inundated with concept. We are inundated with principle. We are inundated with more intellectual realities. But we are lacking a lot on the experience of God's kingdom passing through our lives. Happening through our situations. And yet... We see that's not the biblical mandate. The mandate is that we come to know Jesus fully. We come to know Him and experience Him. 
Remember what Jesus taught in the Gospel of John? He said, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. But he said, no, no, all those Scriptures speak to me, but you're unwilling to come to me and have life. In other words, y'all, the Bible you're holding there in your lap, the Bible is the launching pad for divine encounter, but without divine encounter, there is no change. Without divine encounter, there's no transformation. It's not just reading the Bible. The Bible's, the goal of reading the Bible is not comprehension alone. The goal of reading the Bible is to create space for a divine encounter with the author of the Bible. That in the Bible, the Bible's the only book we ever read whose author is always present when we read it. That the Bible is a, a moment for us, or a, a transcription, a, a chronicling of the redemptive nature and story of God that we might enter into the story of God, not only enter in mentally, but then allow the Spirit of God to allow us to experience the realities of the kingdom. See, we're, we're, this is not a, we're not talking about a philosophical adjustment. We're talking about a power encounter with the Almighty God who then produces the same fruit of the Father through that surrendered son or daughter that came through Jesus himself. The same fruit that Jesus bore, we are to bear. We are to bear. Jesus in the gospel made this really scary statement. He said, John 5, 19, he said, The Son of Man can do nothing of himself. I don't know if you know this. Do you know that Jesus so restricted his function on earth that he actually couldn't heal anyone? That he couldn't actually multiply food? That he couldn't do those things and miracles because he had restricted himself to the life of a human being that would have to be fully dependent on the Father through the Holy Spirit? Fully dependent on the Father through the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, if he did miracles as God, I'd still be impressed. Wow! You're God. But you know what I would do? If he did miracles as God, I'm reduced to an observer. So I just applaud. Oh, that's awesome, Jesus. You did miracles. But that's not the way of the New Testament. The way of the New Testament is that everybody gets in on the miracles. It's that everybody gets in on the work of God in the world. It's that everybody puts their hands to the plow, or part, contributing to the kingdom of God. That's how the New Testament shifted. Because now that the the Holy Spirit that once rested on the prophets of old, He now dwells in every believer. And you must understand and remember, church, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of resurrection. The Holy Spirit is in you and He wants out. He wants out. He wants out in your workplace. He wants out in your school. He wants out at your lunch. He wants out. The Bible's clear that He is in us, according to Scripture, as a river, not a lake. There are not lakes of streaming water. There are rivers of living water coming out of you because you are to be the vessel. I am to be the vessel where the Holy Spirit is not just an abiding presence. No, it is a flowing presence that alters the situations that are around us. That the flowing presence of God wants to alter what it is that we put our hands to so that He can bring the transformation that to an individual. He can bring the transformation to a city. He can bring the transformation to a nation. But He is the one who brings about the change. The Holy Spirit. And it is my yieldedness in a renewed mind to Him that makes the difference. I want to encourage you, church. Never turn down an opportunity to die. I think I'm getting more clarity on my last season, but I think it was another opportunity to die. To die. Because listen, friends, resurrection follows death. It doesn't precede it. It follows death. And it's us again and again, season after season, yielding to the purposes of God, saying yes in our heart that we want to live the kind of lives that risk that demonstrates the faith we have in our God. I want you to look at Mark chapter 4 with me. It's an amazing text. Jesus, you understand what I mean when I say Jesus chose to live by restraint, right? He, lo- he, he chose. That's why, we well, say why, because he chose to live as a model to us. That was the point. He wanted to be a model to us, that we are to live like he lived on the earth. I'll never forget, I was at Oral Roberts University a couple years ago, and I was there with Daniel Kalenda, who is now over Christ for the Nations. He is kind of the protege of uh, Reinhard Bonnke, one of the greatest evangelists uh, in the history of Christianity, really. And Reinhard Bonnke, 
I guess he would be the greatest in terms of numbers. He's one more people than, than any other evangelist. But he is now over Christ for the nations. And I remember Daniel Kalinda got up in ORU's chapel and he began to preach the message out of Matthew chapter 10 and it so struck me. Because this is what he says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 8. He says, Jesus gets his disciples. I don't know about you, but I like to read the commissions that Jesus gives the disciples. And I, I was reading through this commission again, and he, he brought up this commission. And, and this is what Jesus said. He said, heal the sick, cast out devils, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead. Freely you have received, freely give. Would you look at that text again? Leave it up for a moment. Please notice he did not say pray for the sick. He said heal the sick. You might say, Craig, Pastor Craig, I don't understand. We're not the healer. He is. And that's true. It's just not what Jesus said. What Jesus said is you heal the sick. I, I get it, y'all. I get it. I can't heal anybody. I can't touch anybody and heal anybody. But for some reason, he chose to command me to do something that was impossible for me to do. Why would he do that? Think about this. He chose to command me to do something that in my own string is utterly impossible to do because the only way I can see the command of God for my life, for your life to be fulfilled in and through me is that I so yield myself to him that I have such renewal in my soul that his kingdom gets expressed through my life. Mark shares a lot about the renewed mind. He talks a lot about the renewed mind. Let me mention something about the renewed mind. We're going to read this text. You all know the passage. Many of you could quote Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you're able to prove what? That which is the will of God, that which is good, that which is acceptable, and that which is perfect. Notice that. A renewed mind proves the will of God. Listen, church. A transformed mind transforms a person and a transformed person transforms a city and God's desire is that our transformed minds transform our lives so that our lives being transformed transform those around us notice what the Bible says he says the renewed mind proves everybody say prove I want to give you my personal opinion. I, I believe that the renewed mind is the best way to demonstrate the will of God. You say, what is the will of God? Well, the clearest definition is, is the, the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, what he called the Lord's Prayer. He said, what he said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? On earth as it is in heaven. So what is the will of God? It's that whatever I do, I see the kingdom of heaven crash into the reality of earth. That no matter what I'm facing, God's will is that His provision in heaven would break in on my experience on earth. What is the will of God? It's on earth as it is in heaven. Listen to me. Every other commission God has given me, make disciples of all nations, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Every commission God has given me is a part of this greater commission. And that greater commission is that what? That I would live my life on earth as it is in heaven. You say, Craig, what does a renewed mind, what does a renewed soul do? It proves his will on earth as it is in heaven. It proves what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. So Jesus, in Mark chapter 4, this is one of the more alarming stories of Scripture for me personally. Mark chapter 4, let's read it. I'm going to begin reading in verse 35. On the same day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us cross over to the other side. Now when he had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already feeling. But he, Jesus, was in the stern so that it was already feeling. But he was asleep on a pillow. And they awoke Jesus and said to him, Teacher, uh, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But then, here's our verse, you ready? Then he said to them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Wow, it's alarming. Look at the picture. Jesus is sleeping in the stern of the boat. The wind and the waves are beating vehemently against the boat. Jesus is sleeping. They wake him up and they say, Don't you care that we're perishing? We're going to go under the water. The Bible says he stands and rebukes the storm. It calms 
And then he turns to the disciples and says, how come you guys don't have any faith? Wait, let's go through the story again. Who is Jesus? He's God. He's the Word become flesh. He is God with flesh on. What do we call conversation with God? Prayer. So the disciples came to Jesus and they prayed and he answered their prayer and then asked them why they didn't have any faith. I'm going to go over here to this side. They prayed to Jesus. They woke him up. He answered their prayer and then he asked them why they didn't have any faith. Say, Craig, what does this tell us? Let me tell you what it tells us. It tells us two things about the renewed mind. It tells us two critical things that we've got to understand as we move into the next season of our life, vital for us. Number one, this is what it tells us about the renewed mind. The renewed mind realizes that sometimes God ultimately would rather do something through you than for you. That God would want to do something through you as a mature vessel instead of for you. He was training the disciples at this point in his ministry to represent himself on the earth. Not just to petition him and not for, to petition him to work on their behalf. Now listen, it doesn't mean prayer and intercession is wrong. Prayer and intercession is great. But we, as we mature in Christ, listen, we, as we mature, we live from the heart of God towards the issues of life. We live from what God has called us to so that we can say every day with a renewed soul and mind, God, what are you doing? And we live from that place. Place of authority. God, what are you doing in my family? And we live from that place of authority. God, what are you doing in my workplace? And we live from that place of authority. The disciples are being trained to speak to the mountain. He just told them, speak to the mountain and it will be cast aside. Now they wake him up on their first challenge. Listen to me. Faith, listen, faith is not figuring out what we're able to do. It's deciding what we're going to do even when we think we can't do it. I'm going to say it again. I'm going to say it again. Faith is not us getting to a place, figuring out what we're able to do. No, no, no. Faith is deciding what we're going to do even when we think we can't do it. He told them to speak to the obstacle... He told them to speak to the mountain, but instead they petitioned Jesus to calm the storm when they were trained to calm it. They were trained to speak to it. Here's the second thing about this story about the renewed mind, is that Jesus gave what he had. What did he have? He had peace. Why? He spoke peace to a storm. Why? He had it because he was sleeping in the storm. Church, you've probably heard it said before. I'm not, it's not original to me, but let's make it clear. This story teaches us that you have authority over any storm you can sleep in. You have authority over any storm you can sleep in. The renewed mind lives with the reality that our internal world determines and defines our external world. I told my wife in the car months ago, we were driving, and I was dealing with a lot of challenges, and, and it just became so apparent to me. Nothing in the world is as it seems. It only takes meaning based upon the lens by which I view it. Nothing has really any meaning apart from my ability to assign to it meaning. That's what a renewed mind understands, is that my internal world defines my external world. My internal world defines, brings definition to what is around me. Let me illustrate. All of us have been around some people who may be smiling on the outside, but they're anxious and they're terrified and they're fearful on the inside, and you can feel it when you walk in the room. You walk around them and you feel it. Why? Because their internal world is defining the circumstances around them. Their internal world is defining... I mean, you don't have to have great discernment to feel that with people. That their internal world defines the reality around them. And Jesus, catch this, was able to take in word form, to take a decree, and when he spoke, he released peace that calmed a storm. His internal world defined the external world. Now, now, now think about this. John chapter 114. 
The Bible says the Word became flesh. That means Jesus became flesh. Jesus is the Word of God. The Son of God became flesh and He dwelt among us. But here's what it says in John 6. It says the words that Jesus spoke were spirit. What's this? So the Word, Jesus becomes the Word. The Word becomes flesh. And then the words that Jesus speaks become spirit. So he is flesh, yet when he spoke, the word became spirit. The Bible says he only spoke what he heard the Father say. He didn't say anything that he didn't hear the Father say. So his word became spirit when he spoke. His word, the word of God, taken on flesh, became spirit when he spoke to whatever he was speaking to. Now think with me. What does Romans 14, 17 say? Think about this. This is great news for our day and age. He said the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. He said the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy. What's that next phrase? In the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is where? In the Holy Spirit. Where's the kingdom of God? In the Holy Spirit. Not in just you and I. The kingdom of God is in the Holy Spirit. That's where God's kingdom gets expressed. So when Jesus speaks his word, it becomes spirit. It accomplishes that which it was sent to do. You say, Craig, why is that so significant? Because that presence, that word, contains the reality of the king and his kingdom. So that when he decrees and he declares over a situation, then what happens is the reality of his kingdom and who he is as a king begins to operate on that situation what does the Bible say where the spirit of the Lord is there is freedom so the manifested presence of Jesus through the Holy Spirit is measurable by the freedom it produces in the lives we contact so I should be setting the prisoner free my life should be liberating those around me Cleanse the leper, raise the dead, heal the sick. My life is a vehicle of his presence, the reality of his kingdom. This is what the Pharisees never understood. They didn't understand that the miracles that Jesus performed is because Jesus had a heart for people. He had a heart for people. Listen, the purpose of miracles, miracles are redemptive in nature to restore people to God's intent. Miracles are not just a suspension of the natural laws of the world in order for God to save. It's, it, they're very redemptive in nature to try to restore people back to the intention of God. So, so think about this. I love the story of, of, of Israel in the wilderness, right? I just love the story. Just watching them move through the wilderness, ultimately enter the promised land. But notice, the miracles that took place in the wilderness were to sustain them but the miracles that took place in the promised land were to advance them. Now listen to me, church. This is so important for us. This is so important for us. There is a difference. The miracle, the difference in miracles we experience in our early days of following Jesus, when we first start following Jesus, God performs miracles on our half because we're learning to trust in God and they're sustaining us. They're helping us to see that God will be faithful. They're sustaining us. They're giving us life. He's trying, though, to bring us as a church to a place where we have a full expression of the promises of God, that we see His kingdom move forward, that we don't just experience his miracles to bring life to us that we don't just experience his miracles to sustain us that we are in a place we are called to experience his miracles to advance his kingdom in our city to advance his kingdom in our reality and those miracles that God wants to do they don't keep us alive they help us advance the kingdom to see the kingdom of God on display through our lives so one more story Mark chapter 6 I don't have time to read the whole story I'm going to jump around but This is one of the stories where Jesus multiplies the food. Look at verse 30. Mark 6 and verse 30. This is what the Bible says. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus two chapters after what we just read and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. Wow. Did y'all hear that again? Did you hear that again? What they had done and what they had taught. You see that? Not what they had just taught, what they had taught and they had done. And he said to them, come aside by yourselves, let's go on vacation. Let's get some rest. For there were many coming and going, and they didn't even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. Now here's where the story gets really, really funny. <laughs> At least the way I see it. He multiplies bread and food. It's a great story. The disciples thought that, whoo, we're done now. We're getting a vacay, right? So we're getting a few days rest on the beach, and they start sailing across the sea. And before they get across the sea, they look upon the shore, and the people that were over there 
had run all the way around the shore 6.7 miles. I looked it up this week. They ran 6.7 miles to wait on Jesus over there. And the disciples were like, dang it, man. Like We were getting a vacation. They're like, Jesus is going to slip into compassion mode again. What does Jesus do? Slips straight into compassion mode. The Bible says he lands on the shore. He slips straight into compassion mode. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And he goes and touches people over and over and over. Well, finally, the Bible says they devised a plan. They come to Jesus and they're like, hey, Jesus, we're, we're really burdened for these people too. I know you're burdened for them, but we're really burdened too. And they've been here for a few days. They haven't eaten. So we've, we've kind of taken a vote. This is a democracy. So we've kind of taken a vote. And the vote is that you should send them away so that they can go get some food lest they faint. And Jesus shocked them. He looked at them and he said, oh, you feed them. Now, the way I take that story is you think Jesus is about to laugh. Like this is a joke. But it's not a joke. He was serious. He said, feed them. And he told them how. Get them in groups. Give me the five loaves and two uh, five loaves and two fish. Get them in groups, and then the food will be multiplied. Now, the next story is what kills me. It's what's tacked on to this story. This is fascinating to me. After this happens, notice, go verse 45 with me. Go to verse 45. Jump with me right quick. Immediately after this, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side of Bethsaida while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed by the mountain to pray by himself. Look at verse 47. And the Bible says in verse 47, Now when evening, now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing. Now listen, he saw them straining at rowing. This is a word of knowledge, folks. He's on the mountainside. He can't see them through the dark. It's, this is a word of knowledge. He sees them in vision form. Straining it rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost, and they cried out. Look at verse 50. Notice what the scripture says. For they all saw him were troubled, but immediately he talked with them and said, Don't be afraid, be of good cheer, it's I. And he went into the boat to them, and the wind ceased, and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure, and they marveled. Now this is fascinating to me. Watch this. God sometimes shows up in our lives in very terrifying ways. And the disciples were just more afraid of drowning than they were of talking to a ghost. So they start talking to a ghost. Look what happens, verse 51. Then he went up into the boat, the wind ceased. They were greatly amazed. Look at verse 52. Do you got 52? Here's our verse. This is our main text. For they had not understood about the loaves. Because their hearts were still hardened. Luke, Mark, John, Matthew. What does walking on a sea have to do with loaves that you fed people yesterday? What does coming out on the sea and talking to a ghost, what does stealing a storm have to do with loaves? See, Jesus sent them to the other side. Let me put it this way. You ready? Would it make sense to you for me to say to you that the food didn't multiply at Jesus' hands? It didn't. He didn't take the bread, throw it up, shazam, and it multiplied. You know what he did? He took five loaves and two bread, two, uh, five loaves and two fish, and he put them in 12 different baskets. And as the disciples went and handed out the food, guess what happens? The baskets never ran dry. In other words, the miracle was multiplied not at the hands of Jesus. The miracle was actually multiplied at the hands of the obedient disciples as they continued to give out. You don't believe this? This is what happens in Scripture. This is what just happened just this last year in Mozambique. I want to show you a quick story of this. They're there to feed 50 people. And over 400, I think, different orphans show up and they cannot get the baskets empty. They can't get the baskets empty. It keeps on multiplying as they share. What's this quick testimony real quick of what this woman says takes place? things happen? Of course they happen. Of course they happen. Now notice what happens in the text. 
the disciples are handing out the food. It's multiplying as they do. Now think with me, what is the problem with this story? What they missed with the loaves, what was it they missed when their hearts were hardened? The food multiplied at their hands. Why? Because their hands were superior or super special? No, it's because Jesus told them, you feed the people. And he didn't change his mind. And when Jesus says something, his words are spirit. And he said to them, feed the people. You feed the people. In other words, what's the point? The renewed mind lives with the realization that God always enables what he commands. If God commands you to do something, he is the personal guarantee that it will happen as he said it would happen. He said, you feed them, he never changed his mind. They go get basket loaves and all of the baskets begin to multiply. Why is that important? Because now that they're in the storm, they thought that if Jesus wasn't with them in their boat, if he wasn't physically with them, then they could die at sea. And they didn't realize that Jesus had already put them in the boat and he sent them to the other side. And that was all they needed was the word of Jesus to say you're going to the other side you're going to Bethsaida and I know the storm looks like it's going to overtake you and I know that everything externally looks like the reality of God's promise is unfruitful but all they needed to succeed at arriving to the other side was God's word you've got to understand the renewed mind brokers into our existence the impossibilities and the supernatural work of God yes Yes, give God praise, yes. That's what, that's what the renewed mind does. The renewed mind, watch this. It gives the context for that prophecy you received when you were five to take place when you're 45. It's the, it's the banks by which the faith is expressed. The renewed mind is, is the context for which the prayer you've prayed for the last 10 years gets expressed in your reality, your experience. And we have the distinct privilege, y'all, of living right now at a time when it is God's decision to shape the course of world history through believers. The story of the world and your story are being written through the same finger. That God wants to use believing believers to transform the world around us. So I want to give you some very practical things before we close. How can we live with that renewed mind? How can we live with that renewed mind? Our text is Romans 12 and 2. Notice what it says. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. God is far more interested in changing my mind than he is changing my circumstances. We always want God to change our circumstances, but God always wants to change my mind. Have you ever noticed how your mind doesn't mind? Have you ever noticed this? Your mind won't mind. My mind doesn't mind. We're going to look today at how you manage your mind. But let me give you, first of all, why we need to manage our mind. Number one, number one reason why we must manage my mind or change my mind, because my thoughts control my life. My thoughts control my life. You have good thoughts, you're going to have a good life. You have bad thoughts, you're going to have a bad life. You have sick thoughts, you're going to have a sick life. If you have sinful thoughts, you're going to have a sinful life. Proverbs 4.23, look what it says. Be careful how you think, for your life is shaped by your thoughts. Your life is shaped by your thoughts. We control what we eat. We control what we believe. We control what we drink. We don't always control what we allow in our minds. We don't always control that. And the Bible tells us that every action in our life starts in with a thought. If you don't think it, it doesn't happen. If you think good things, then good things happen. You're going to do good things. But if you have bad thoughts, then you're going to tend to act in bad ways. Your mind controls and shapes your life. There's a second reason you need to learn to control your mind. It's because, number two, my mind is the battleground for sin. My mind is the battleground for sin. It's the battleground for sin. It's where every temptation happens. Every sin actually starts in the mind. The sin of pride starts in the mind. The sin of lust starts in the mind. The sin of hatred starts in the mind. Fear starts in the mind. Resentment starts in the mind. Jealousy starts in the mind. Envy starts in the mind. They all start in the mind. Worry, being stressed out, that's all in the mind. The battlefield of sin is not fought around you. It's fought in your temples. Between your temples. Romans 7, 22 and 23, this 
Paul, Apostle Paul talks about that battle that's constantly go on. He says, I love to do God's will insofar as my new nature is concerned, but there's something else deep within me that's at war with my mind, and it wins the fight, and it makes me a slave to the sin within me. Paul said, in my mind, I want to be God's servant. Instead, I find myself enslaved to sin. You know the habits, the hurts, the hang-ups that mess up our lives. Now, notice the words in that sentence. Leave up that text. I want you to circle the word war. Circle the word fight. Circle the word enslaved. Circle the word mind. These are battles that go on in your brain. Now, sometimes you're conscious of that middle mental battle, but sometimes you're not conscious of that middle mental battle. Sometimes you don't know that that mental battle. That's why you're so mentally fatigued, by the way. Difficult seasons give you mental fatigue. They wear you out because this battle's happening all the time. The reason the battle is so intense is because your mind is your greatest asset. And Satan knows that, that whatever, he gets, or whatever gets you or gets your attention gets you. It gets you. And so he starts with your mind. He didn't start with your behavior. He doesn't even start with your emotions. He starts with your thoughts. He starts with your thoughts. Here's the third reason why you've got to learn to manage your mind because it's the key to peace and happiness. Your mind is the key to peace and happiness. An unmanaged mind leads to tension. A managed mind leads to tranquility. An unmanaged mind leads to pressure. A managed mind leads to peace. An unmanaged mind leads to stress. A managed mind leads to strength and serenity. An unmanaged mind leads to conflict in your life. It leads to chaos in your life, but a managed mind leads to confidence. The Bible says it like this in Romans 8 and 6. This is the NIV, bad translation, but I'll show it to you. Romans 8 and 6, the Bible says, If your flesh, if your flesh, maybe it's not up there. Romans 8 6 says, If your flesh controls your mind, there is death. In other words, it's a dead end. If your mind is controlled by the flesh, it is a dead end. But he said, if the Holy Spirit controls your mind, then there's life and peace. The Holy Spirit controlling my mind. You got to, ultimately, I want to look as we close at three choices you have to make every single day. And in fact, you're going to have to make them several times a day. Several times a day. There are three daily choices you make for a healthy mind, and they all start with an F. You got to feed your mind, free your mind, and focus your mind. I'll give you the blanks. The Bible teaches all three of these in the New Testament. Number one, I must feed my mind with truth. I must feed my mind with truth. That's your blank. Jesus said, uh, it's one of the most famous things. He said, the truth, John 8, 32, shall make you, make you free. But a lot of people quote that verse and not realize that he's talking about the Bible. He's talking about the, the scriptures, the truth of God's word. Matthew 4 and 4, Jesus said, people need, need more than bread for their life. They, they must feed on the word of God. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We can't live by bread alone. Y'all, the Bible in your lap is soul food. It's the owner's manual for life. It's the truth that will set you free. That's why we have Bible reading plans that we do every year to get on. I hope you're still with me. To saturate your mind in the Word of God. To saturate your mind in the Scripture. To feed upon the Word of God. There are a lot of things that are true that won't set you free. I can teach you how to program a computer or, or, a, or a MacBook, but it won't set you free. I could teach you all the biology of a deer, but it's not going to set you free. I, I, there's a lot of truth that you can learn in life, but it will not set you free. But the truth that will set you free is the truth of God's word, which is the owner's manual for life. So I got to feed my mind the truth, which means I got to feed my mind on this book. How often, Craig? All the time. All the time. Look at Psalm 119, verse 147. He said, I rise early. I rise early to cry out for hope and to put, or help and to put my hope in your words. Notice that word, hope. I've said this before. Someone has counted over 7,000 promises in the Bible. Someone's counted over 7,000 promises. And if you need hope, you can get those words and promises of God in your mind. And listen, if you're feeling hopeless, a lot of times, yeah, it can be done physically. It can be done psychologically. It can be done physiologically. But the reality is, if we need hope, sometimes it means we're not spending enough time in that book. That the word of God becomes the source of hope. That, that ultimately, I'm going to be a hopeful person because if if you'll become a promised person, these promises give you the truth and you become a promised person. You get all the hope that you need. Look at this next verse, Psalm 119, verse 97. Lord, how I love your word. I think about it all day long. All day long. Take your pen and circle the phrase all day long. That's feeding my truth and feeding my mind the truth all day long. Do you think about God's word all day long? No, you don't. Some of us may not even think about it once a day. 
But the Bible says if you start your day with the Word of God and you keep it on your mind throughout the day, you can be pulling back into memory time after time in difficult times. Let me show you how serious this is and how serious David was, King David, about being in the Word, the truth that sets you free. There was a time when David had so many enemies, he was a fugitive. He was running for his life. He was hiding in caves, and no matter what happened in his life, he fed himself the truth of God. Look at Psalm 119, verse 95. This is what David said. During this time, he's on the run. Even when wicked people hide to ambush and kill me, I quietly keep my mind on your decrees. When you look at all the things in the world, it's easy to get discouraged. You pick up a newspaper, you turn on the television, you watch news, you read the news, you read the internet, you're going to get discouraged. You're going to feel hopeless. But he said, I keep my mind quietly on your word. I feed my mind mind with the truth of God. And David says, I do that when I'm running from my enemies. Do you do that in crisis? Do you manage your mind in crisis? Oh, it's really hard. It's a whole lot easier for me to tell you about it than it is to do it. Come on, I'm first one. I'm first one to witness to that. But when you're in crisis, to manage your mind, to feed your mind with the truth. The second thing I have to do to learn to manage my mind is I must free my mind from destructive thoughts. i got to feed my mind with the truth and free my mind from destructive thoughts. That means my mind has to be liberated has to be delivered. My mind has to be set free. Your mind needs to be released. Now, this is not easy. It's easy for me to tell you that it needs to be done. It's not easy for it to happen. How do you liberate your mind? How does God deliver or set free or liberty your mind? Why is it so hard? It's so hard because we're in a battle. There's a battle going on in your mind from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep. And there are three forces that battle against your mind. Three Forces. Let me give you the three enemies of your mind. Number one, the first enemy of your mind is your flesh. It's your flesh. It's your flesh's desire to think about you. Think not what God wants, but you. Romans 7, 23, he said, I see in my body a principle at war with the law of the mind, taking me captive to the law of sin that dwells inside of me. There's a battle in my mind, and this law of sin takes captive my mind. In other words, I'm a hostage to my thoughts. I'm a hostage. Have you ever felt like that? I just can't get this thought out of my mind, Pastor Craig. I'm a hostage to my... You ever find yourself doing things you don't want to do? Well, what's the verse saying? Do you ever engage in self-defeating behavior? I know this is not good for me, but I'm going to do it anyways. I'm going to do it anyways. Yeah, that's the battle in your mind. And the Bible says you're losing it. Your flesh is not your friend. It's the source of every bad habit in your life. It's not your friend. It's the source of all self-defeating habits in your life. I want you to write this down. I want you to write this down. I don't have to believe everything I think. I don't have to believe everything I think. Why? Because the truth is my mind lies to me all the time. Feelings are not facts, y'all. Feelings are not facts. Feelings are feelings. Feelings are not facts. I don't have to believe everything my mind thinks just because I feel something It's true, doesn't make it true. My mind, my emotions are lied to me many times. And you got to learn to know the difference between the two. We have to learn to know the difference. One of the most important questions you can ask in your life is to challenge your thoughts every day and say, well, I know what I'm thinking, but is that really true? My wife in this season has to help me with that, if not multiple days a week. I know you're thinking it, but is it true? Is it true? I know you keep thinking it. I know it keeps assaulting you, but is it true? I'm never going to get any better. Is that really true? My life is worthless. Is that really true? You need to ask that question. Is it really true? He said in Romans 8, 5, those who are dominated by the flesh think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. Here's the second enemy of the mind, Satan. Satan. Satan's the second enemy, and he wants to change your mind in all the wrong directions. Now listen to me very clearly. If you are Christ, a Christian, you have Christ in your heart, then you have power greater than Satan. Satan can't force you if you're a Christian. Satan cannot force you to do anything. The only way he can influence you is by suggesting. And when he puts the suggestions in your mind, we call that temptation. So he suggests. He can't force you to do anything, but he can suggest. And boy, dear God, some, some of you have had millions. Sometimes, sometimes you have millions of thoughts from Satan come in a day. He just keeps suggesting and suggesting. And if you don't learn to control your mind or manage your mind, make up your mind, you're going to let that stuff in. Satan's constantly planting negative thoughts, negative ideas, negative impressions. The moment you wake up, he's telling you to do exactly 
opposite of what God tells you to do. Go ahead, you do that. You deserve it. Get angry. Get, get, get ticked at that person. Go ahead and get angry. You deserve to get angry. They're stupid. You need to get even with that person. Do something to them. You need to get back at them. And he's giving you all this stuff. Where do you think that is coming from? He's feeding you ammunition. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 11, he said, I've, this is what Paul's forgave a man in the church. Look what he said. I've forgiven that man. I don't hold a grudge. Why? So that Satan won't outsmart us. For we're very familiar with his evil schemes. Who wants you to keep hatred in your heart? Satan. Who wants you to keep bitterness in your heart? Satan. He wants you to be unforgiving. So I've got that flesh, I've got Satan, but then thirdly, third enemy in my mind is the world's values. Now the world's values are in constant opposition to everything God wants. They're promoted all around you. TV, music promotes the world's values. Celebrities promote the world's values. Everybody around there's nobody around in the world that's actually encouraging you to do the right thing. They say you do what's best for you. Think of yourself. That's why 1 John 2.16 said all that's in the world, and then he lists what's in the world, is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Have you noticed there's no one around you that encourages you to be disciplined? Nobody in the world encourages you to be disciplined. Nobody in your workplace encourages you to be disciplined. It says give in to the lust, give in to the lust of the eyes, give in to the pride of life, give in to passion, position yourself, get position, give in to sex, give in to salary, give in to status, give in to living for yourself. I want to feel this way. I want to live this way. I want everybody to worship me. So how do you fight that mental battle? Well, Paul gives it to us in 2 Corinthians 10. He said, though we live in this world, we don't wage war as the world does. No, no. The weapons we fight with are not the world's weapons. The world's weapons are political weapons. We don't use those weapons. Our weapons have divine power. And what do they have divine power to do? Demolish strongholds. Now, if you're taking notes, you need to circle strongholds. He says they have power to divine, or divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself in our minds against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. In other words, we're in a wrestling match with our thoughts and we must pin them to the mat over and over and over and over and over again. And we never stop. You say, Craig, what's a stronghold? You ready? A stronghold is a lie that I believe. A stronghold is an enslaving lie that I begin to believe. Anytime I believe a lie, all lies come from the devil. Satan is the father of lies. But anytime I believe a lie about God, that's a stronghold. It's a stronghold. Anything I believe about the future or the past or the present, that's a stronghold. Anytime I believe a lie about money or I believe a lie about sex... That becomes a stronghold in my life. It becomes a false value. It could be a worldview like hedonism. It could be pleasure for materialism. It could be live for money. Those become strongholds. A stronghold can be a personal attitude. I've met people who had a stronghold in their brain was worry. I've met people whose stronghold in their brain was always depression. I've met people whose stronghold in their brain was always resentment or pride or envy. And listen, folks, we got to know the scheme of the enemy. I'm almost come. Come on, uh, Maddie. Notice what this text says in Genesis 3. This is, this is the oldest trick in the book. Satan is Diablos. He is the devil. He is the accuser. Adam had sinned. Eve had sinned. And what happened? God said, what happened, Adam? What happened? Here's Adam's response. Watch this, church. Do not miss this. Watch the church. He said, I heard you in the garden, God, and I was afraid because I was naked. In other words, I was ashamed. First time humans felt shame. So I hid. And God says, who told you that you were naked? Now, God never asks a question because he needs an answer. God asks a question because he's trying to teach Adam and he's trying to teach us that the moment we stop listening to our father and start listening to the lies of the enemy, we give the enemy the upper hand. And this is the question the Holy Spirit's asking you today. Who told you you'd always be depressed? Who told you you'd always be anxious? Who told you you couldn't finish that degree? Who told you your kids would never be right? Who told you your life would never get back on track? Who told you you had to live addicted? Who told you that your faith would always be a struggle? Who told you that you didn't have purpose in life? Who told you that your life would never amount to anything? Because I didn't tell you that. What I told you is that you are more than a conqueror through me. I told you that I would never leave you nor forsake you. I told you that I love you. I told you that even in the valley, my grace will sustain you. Understand, church, the mind is a battlefield. You know where the word diablos, which is devil in Greek, is a compound word? You know what it means? This is what it means. 
It means the repeated hitting of something until it penetrates it. The devil, here's what he does. He just, he just penetrates. He just keeps on hitting your mind every day with thought after thought after thought. And he knows not all. He'll send a million of them. He knows not all of them will stick. But how many does he need to stick? One. And when one sticks, then I start believing it. And the more I believe it, the more power it gets. And the more power it gets, the more I fall prey to it. And now my vulnerability is open. And how does it stick? How does it stick, Craig? How does it stick? How does it stick? It's when you grab onto it and you start thinking about it. That's when it sticks. So here's these thoughts. And I grab one and I think, oh, I'm going to wrestle it. Oh, I'm going to wrestle it down. And before I know it, my life feels anxious, out of control, unable, seemingly, to keep my mind on the right things. So we have flesh, we have Satan, we have the world. And the third and final truth, I must focus my mind on the right things. I got to think on Jesus. I got to think on heaven. I got to think about others. I got to think about Jesus. I got to consider Jesus. I got to keep thinking about Jesus. This week I started a new tactic. I've done it some in the past, but it's really been helping me this week. On my runs, even when those words feel empty sometimes, they feel totally empty sometimes. I've started on my runs. I just I, This week I got so bold when I was running, I just started quoting scripture as loud as I could. And it felt empty. God, it felt empty. It felt like nothing. It felt like the reality of what I was saying had as far as China is from America, but you just keep doing it. And you keep believing and you keep quoting scripture. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Y'all, look at how awesome the world is. Can you imagine how beautiful God made heaven? I mean, just keep our eyes and minds on that. Just the beauty, the beauty of what awaits us. That this this present suffering is not worthy to be compared. It will be far outweighed with eternal glory. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.